Well, today uh, we're still in Matthew 19. Last time we talked about Jesus and divorce, and um, that issue is in many ways a, a hot topic, I think. And um, even, you know, I posted the, the video of our little lesson like I usually do each week on the Sermon Audio website, and I think there's been like 80 downloads, which is quite a, quite a bit. Uh, or, you know, small Bible study, but it just reflects that people are, are, are interested in that topic, and they also probably struggle with what Jesus says there, but um, I think the next passage is much harder. It's this rich young ruler, and I'm going to see if I can't share my screen, and you can confirm if uh, you're able to see it. Yes. should see a PDF with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, I will tell you, this is from the um, Holman Christian Standard Bible, which actually has been superseded by a slightly revised Christian Standard Bible, but it was what I had to easily copy out of. Um, the one note I would make, if you read the Matthew 19 passage, starting in verse 16, the King James is different uh, in, in a way that substantively matters. I'm not going to get into all that, but it is healthy to compare translations the King James on Matthew 19 is more similar to, to Mark and Luke. And you'll see the difference um, in, in the question he asked between the three. That is the question asked by the young ruler. But but let's let's start with the approach. And, and, and it's helpful just to look at all three of these. There's just a little bit of extra data in Mark and Luke. And, you know, I've maybe not said this before, but anytime that a particular passage is covered in uh, more than one synoptic, or in the case, for example, the triumphal entry, it's in all four Gospels, uh, it is helpful to compare all the data. Mm -hmm. um, some people would say, well, shouldn't it all be identical? Um, I, I read a book not long ago by a guy named Jim Wallace. He writes uh, apologetics books, Jim Varner Wallace, and he's a, a cold case detective, but he made this comment about looking at the Gospels. He says, you know, when I'm investigating a murder and, and I interrogate three witnesses who saw all say exactly the same thing, I know they're guilty, right? Not, not because the, 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 the testimony should necessarily be inconsistent, but you expect to hear different details from different witnesses and that sort of thing. So this shouldn't bother us that there are differences, but it is valuable to, to look at all of it. Uh, the question in Matthew uh, again, as, as translated here, it's a little different than King James. Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? What good must I do? This word good is key for us in, in how Jesus responds, but we'll, we'll hold off on that for a moment. In all three versions, he's called teacher or good teacher. You'll see in Mark, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? have eternal life, inherit eternal life. I've suggested before, not really different, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, make a couple of comments. Uh, and then the Luke, he says, what must I do to, you know, teacher, what must I do to, you know, inherit eternal life? So, uh, or good teacher, rather. Good becomes a key word, but I think we need to focus on teacher. Uh, when I teach John's gospel, one of the, the, the observations I reiterate over and over is every time he has a dialogue with somebody who begins a question with rabbi something follows which usually evidences confusion okay uh and, and it's almost a signal to us in john's gospel that 
a, a question, a, 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 you know, a, a confusion, a misunderstanding follows. And they'll say rabbi and they'll whatever they're going to say. And the reason is because while in a sense Jesus was a rabbi and in a sense he was a good teacher, um, to come at the, at the feet of God and say, good teacher, tell me about this, right? Uh, it, it's to express um, a, a complete uh, misapprehension of who you're speaking with. If, if you were speaking face-to-face -face with Jesus, though I think the last thing you would just call him is rabbi or good teacher. Um, so, so have that in mind. And then, of course, this word good, which Jesus is going to comment on in all three versions, he's going to basically say, you know, there's only one that's good. So we'll, we'll come to that. Um, but but uh, then the eternal life part. In Matthew, he wants to have eternal life. This is interesting to us because up to this point in Matthew, almost all the dialogue is about the kingdom. And, and it seems that um, having eternal life or entering life, which is an expression that got used one time in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, those are the same from the perspective of where they're at in the timeline is, is entering the kingdom. That is, they're not separating the two. And I think Jesus even somewhat combines them together. Uh, we'll, we'll see that even here in Matthew 19, because after this dialogue with the rich young ruler, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Well, he's still talking about the same thing. So, so from their perspective, Having eternal life and entering the kingdom, I would suggest, are not different. Now, we would say, though, if someone asked us, most of us would probably say, if you're a Christian, you have eternal life now. And that's true. That's not how it's talked about in the Gospels, by and large. Uh, the synoptics, I should say. Whereas John's Gospel face, uh, places more of an emphasis on eternal life is today. It's at this moment uh, when you place faith in Christ. Both are true, but understand, uh, you know, the, the, he's preaching to a largely Jewish audience who's oriented toward the kingdom, and their questions are often about getting into the kingdom. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't read one, one thing from John. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll, this is something to be familiar to most of you. But, you know, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus in John's gospel, and he comes in the evening and, and all of that, um, you know, he, his first question is, this is Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse two, rabbi. And as I said earlier, it always indicates that what follows will show some misunderstanding. We know that you're a teacher. There it is. Kind of like the, the rich young ruler. Um, Nicodemus will not feel that way later. He will take a role in getting Jesus's body from the cross and dealing with all of that. But at this point in time, Nicodemus, who's the, the teacher of Israel, one of the leading rabbis, uh, he's on the Sanhedrin. He's, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Christ. And John ultimately writes his book to show us he's the Christ, the Son of God. He says, Rabbi, and, and again, that tells us something. We know you're a teacher. The, the we is interesting. It's probably the Sanhedrin. We know you're a teacher that's come from God. For no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with them. And then Jesus gives an answer or response that has nothing to do with what he said. 
Truly, I tell you, unless someone's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have a book, John's Gospel, that is over and over about eternal life or everlasting life or believing. But in the context of talking to Nicodemus, he puts it in terms of entering the kingdom. Um, no one, I mean, if you don't have eternal life, if you haven't become a Christian, if you haven't placed faith in Christ, been born again, you're not going to be in the kingdom. That's kind of what he's saying. And of course, Nicodemus has to ask, well, how, you know, how do I do that? So just, just have that in mind about this, you know, focus on eternal life as a present possession that we see in the unfolding revelation of God in the New Testament versus here early in time in, in, in these questions asked by the young ruler. Um, so look at the response, and then I'll, we'll pause for any thoughts or questions. Uh, Jesus in Matthew says, why do you ask me about what is good? In other words, about a good thing. Uh, I think this word good means intrinsically good, not just uh, proficient or meets a satisfactory standard. It's intrinsically good. Why do you ask me about that? There's only one who is good. Uh, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So see how he uses the expression enter as he much, much as he would if he were saying enter in the kingdom. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now in the Mark version, he says something that's really quite a bit different. Why do you call me good? And, and there may be a textual issue with Matthew, and I haven't looked into that, as to why the King James does it similar to the Mark, uh, how Mark's done. But it's a very different thing to say, ask me about what is good or calling me good. Uh, the calling me good to me makes more sense of the context, but uh, Jesus is really pushing back at being called the good teacher because it's so much it, it on the one hand it's so much less than who he is but on the other hand do you really mean good because no one is good but God now, Jesus isn't claiming as some would say from this passage that he's not God what he's hitting at is this young person has not recognized him as so and so he's in a in a somewhat um, imprecise manner, said good teacher. And this would have been a good time if he were a, a believer to have said, no, 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 I meant good teacher because I, I recognize you as the Christ. Uh, but he didn't say that. And, and then in the Luke version, uh, I'll have to see if I can move my screen just a tad so I can see it. In the Luke version, it's the same thing. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Uh, and, and so it's a little different, but but it pushes back on the identification of Jesus as a good teacher. And if you think about what happens in the Gospels, um, why you know the purpose of John, for example, and he's the only one that explicitly states his purpose. He wants to convince us, the reader, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his uh, lesson. I think all the Gospels have that goal, although not explicitly stated. They speak to different audiences to some degree, and we've talked about Matthew having a Jewish audience in mind. But Peter's profession in Matthew 16 really shows us what the book's about. Uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. All right, that's, that's what it's about. That's, you know, in a big picture. It's identifying who Jesus is. And, and so to come to him 
as just the teacher and Jesus to say, you know, no one's good but God, is, is to try to get him to make the connection. And this will come up at the end of, of the story when, when he says, you know, there's one thing you lack. And we'll get to there in a minute, but it'll tie it back to what's at the beginning here. Um, and, and then just finally notice what he says is an, is, a, is a preliminary answer. Jesus says in Matthew, if you want to enter into life, and I'm suggesting that's equivalent to entering into the kingdom, having life in this sense and being in the kingdom will be the same. He says, keep the commandments. And that's what has caused all the problems. Because if you wanted to teach work salvation, all you would cite is this one verse. And if you wanted to teach that you have to keep the law, all you would cite is this one verse. And that, of course, that's how people do that kind of doctrine. They, they, uh, they take half a board and build their whole theology around it. In, in, in Mark, though, he doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say, if you want to enter life, do this. He, he first says, you know the commandments, and he begins listing the commandments. So the approach is a little different. Uh, in Luke, same thing. You know the commandments, and he goes there. And, and if, if, you, if you put the three together, he speaks to him where he's at. And I think I've heard you, Ken, say this before, kind of the, the term pre-evangelism. Um, we have to minister to people where they're at, and Jesus always does it. He, he, he ministers in John 3 to, the, to Nicodemus, not where he needs him to be in his understanding and belief, but, but he starts where he's at. In John 4, he starts with the lady at the well, and they're talking about which mountain to worship at, because that's where she is in her thinking, and she has questions about that. This young man is, is someone who's grown up with the law, and he's grown up probably with the Pharisees' teaching, and he's of the view, as he'll say in a moment, that he's kept it all. And that, he believes, is how you get life, how you get into the kingdom. He wants Jesus to confirm him and say, you've done that. You've done it well. You've kept it all. It reveals in this young ruler, what Jesus has dealt with all the way up to this point in Matthew, what the whole Sermon on the Mount was about, was that you had a, a whole generation whose leadership had, had led them to believe that you can keep the law good enough to get into the kingdom, to be righteous enough for the kingdom. And he tore that down in Matthew 5 by saying things like, you see how he starts here with do not murder? Remember what he said in Matthew 5? If you've had anger in your heart, you've murdered already. So Jesus is not reversing course on Matthew 5. He's dealing with somebody who's very much of the mindset that many of the people that were present at the Sermon on the Mount had. That they, they could be righteous by keeping the law, and they had. Uh, that's so that's kind of who we're dealing with let me pause there thoughts um, observations questions I, I got one quick question from this view your view on this if uh, inheriting eternal life means getting saved and the young man lacks one thing why didn't jesus just tell him what it was yeah, I, I will argue in a minute that he will tell him what it is. He never tells him to believe on him for eternal life like he did Nicodemus. That, that's right. He says it differently, but I think he does. I think he okay. has revealed the answer, and I'll try to show that. 
but uh, I, I think inherit has the has the idea here of getting it later, and that's why I made the comments earlier about how, especially in John's gospel, and certainly in the epistles, and like in First John, you know, we have this idea that we have eternal life now, and that's true. Paul would even tell Timothy to lay hold of eternal life. It's a present uh, possession to be enjoyed. The moment of faith, you're in Christ, but but and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But at this point in time, when he's talking, mm -hmm. um, I, I think their their concept is is about the kingdom, and and that having life or eternal life and being in the kingdom are kind of part of the same package. It's not that they're the same thing; they're part of the same package. There is the kingdom, and then there's the experience of being there forever. These are, you know, they're they're part of the package. Uh, but but your your question is a good one, and 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 especially the question would be why doesn't he just tell them, regardless of what inherit eternal life means? Right. You would think, we would think maybe, but this is us saying, you know what, Jesus, I can answer this question better than you. You <laughs> would just say, you know what, you need to believe in me as as the Christ, the Son of God, or something like that. And 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 of course, the problem with the Bible is God frequently does things that aren't the way we would do it if we were God, <laughs> and He claims to know better, right? But well, he, I think he, he I, certainly I, knows better. That's for sure. I, the, the reason why I bring that up is because Dillo makes a great case for the rich young ruler who is already a believer. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you've read that in Final Destiny or not, but uh, he makes a good case for it. And so, and I, but I also love uh, Hodges' view on it also, which is probably in very much in line with what you're saying as well. And so I'm on the fence between the two. I see both as uh, possibilities. Well, and, and you know, and if, if for those who haven't, haven't looked at it, uh, Jody Dillow has a, a, a good book called Final Destiny, of which I've read portions. I think I actually quote, I quote something from, from that book in one of mine. I just, but I've not read the whole book. I've read some chapters or something, but uh, I, and I'll say this, we'll probably come out different here, but it's not for lack of him trying to defend his case from the, the context and that sort of thing, which is <clears throat> the key for all of us. Yeah. Uh, the, um, but let's look at how this, this unfolds in. And, and I would suggest he gives an answer, but the, the, the difficulty with evangelism sometimes is you know, you, you have to bring people to a point of realizing they have a need before you can tell them what the answer is. And I think that's the issue with a lot of these Jewish people in Jesus's time. And, and that was what the Sermon on the Mount was so much about, was making them realize they really do have a need because your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes. And this guy has the mindset of those folks. Your righteousness has to be perfect, like your Father in heaven is perfect, uh, and and the righteousness of of law was not merely external. Do not murder doesn't mean you just don't put a knife in somebody's back. It means that that you can't um, have anger in your heart. Do not commit adultery. The list second here. If you've even lusted after someone, you've done it right. Uh, yeah. Do not steal. Have you envied people's stuff? Right. I mean. When you start getting at the heart motivation, anyone who's honest in the Sermon on the Mount is on their knees by the end of that sermon saying, I don't meet the standard, but here we have a guy who's met the standard. And, and, um, and of course, he hasn't. And so I view this as kind of a microcosm of what happens at the Sermon on the Mount 
without Jesus going and, and repeating the whole thing, he needs a way to show him, you know, you really haven't kept the law. Uh, and, and he does that. And if you haven't kept the law and can't do it, he gives him a task he can't do, at least with his own, uh, with his, his, where he's at in his walk. He ought to have been asking Jesus the next question. He ought to have said, Jesus, how can I possibly get into the kingdom if, you know, because I can't do that or something, but he doesn't. Uh, we don't know what happens later, though. We don't know what happens after. Uh, don't you think? The, the, oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I've been talking away and my microphone wouldn't turn off. Uh, I'm sure it was eloquent. Oh, yeah. Uh, but don't you think inherent in his initial question, I've always wondered about this. Um, he thinks he's done all of these things properly, right? He's, he's kept the commandments. He's done what the Pharisees have said you need to do. Yep. But somewhere in there, he feels that's not enough. What am I missing? It is possible that he feels that's not enough. It's also possible he just wants confirmation. That's, you know, uh, Jesus is going around uh, healing people, raising dead people. You read Matthew 8 and 9. Uh, he, he, he probably is completely sincere when he says good teacher. Uh, you notice in the Mark passage, and I didn't mention it earlier, he ran up and knelt down before him. He sees something in Jesus. So whether he doubts that he's done everything, you know, it, it, I think what the question really is, is he believes he has done it. And he wants to see if Jesus is going to add something to it. Something else, you know, because because of he said, by the way, you know, it's not that he's not religious. He has a genuine concern that there's something he hadn't done. I mean, you had the law in the in the in the in, the, in uh, Moses, and then you had the law from the Pharisees. Maybe I left something out. Maybe this Jesus would give one more thing I can do, and uh, and I think that's I think that's what it is. Um, uh, he he clearly has some doubt, but I don't think it's doubt that he's actually kept the law. I think he believes he has, and and I think a lot of the Pharisees probably believe they have. Um, you know. So these commands, by the way, aren't all the Ten Commandments, right? He seems to pick the ones that have to do with how you treat other people. Notice that Mark adds one that's not even a Ten Commandment. He says, do not defraud. And, and there's lots of debate about whether that's a way of getting at uh, do not covet or something like that. Because he doesn't mention don't covet in Matthew in, in, in the telling here. And in Matthew, he adds, love your neighbor as yourself, which is not a Ten Commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, but it is from the Old Testament. It's from Leviticus, and of course, it's something Jesus frequently said. So uh, it, 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 it's interesting, and I, I don't know why they list different ones. Uh, we are not getting, you know, like like in, in my business, we, we do what are called depositions and we also sometimes go to trial and you have a court reporter and they take down every word that's not what the gospels are presenting they're not presenting every word we're getting a, uh, the, we're getting the part of the conversation god wants us to get for the purpose he wants to teach in that passage and so there can be some differences but just you know they're there it's interesting though he he skips over you know loving God and, and not having idols and things like that. So just for what it's worth, uh, 
what is it this young man needs? He, he asked the question after Jesus says, you know, you know, he basically says, you know, the commandments, which is kind of interesting because it's like, why are you asking me? You already know the commandments. And, and his response is, I've kept all of these. He says that in Matthew, all of these. Uh, in, in Mark 10, verse 20, he says, I've kept all these from my youth. What does that mean, from my youth? Remember, he's Jewish. Uh, becomes an adult, in a sense. Uh, takes on the obligations of the law at the age of 12. Is, uh, is, a, is a young Jewish boy. Uh, that's the reason that when Jesus turns 12, we find him in the temple in Luke's gospel teaching the adults. And they're astounded that a 12-year-old boy could be teaching them. And of course, Joseph and Mary had already started back home. And when they find him, Jesus is like, why are you surprised that I'm going about my father's business? But you, so, so this guy is saying from, from, from when I was 12 years old, I've, I've kept all of these. That's a powerful statement. And I'll, I'll suggest to you that while it's probably sincere, it's powerfully arrogant. And it's, this is the, anyone who sets up a performance gospel, they'll never set up a standard that they don't think they've met. Isn't that an uncanny uh, coincidence? Yeah. Uh, and, and they'll, they'll, you know, and, and this young man, of course, he didn't set up a standard, but it, it's been given to him. He's been raised in this culture. And, and I believe he sincerely thinks he's done these things. And I'll, I'll go a step further. He was probably in many ways, a very moral upright person on the outside. Uh, and yet Jesus says, you know, he, he asked Jesus, what do I lack? You see that in, in, uh, in the Matthew version. The Luke, uh, Mark, Mark version doesn't have the question, and, and the Luke version doesn't have the question, but the Matthew says, what do I still lack? In either event, in all three, you still lack one thing, right? Look, Mark and Luke says you lack one thing, answering the question that we don't have recorded there. But, but in Matthew, in Matthew, the author wants to take us back to chapter 5, verse 48, where he said, that, that God is perfect, and that's your standard of righteousness. This word perfect is only used here and there in Matthew. That is in chapter 5, and then here in Matthew 19, 21. And, and I think he's taking them back. That's why I said it's like a microcosm of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to be perfect, if you want complete obedience, um, all you got to do, and here's what I'll ask you to do. When, when you read what follows... Or in Mark and Luke, he says you still lack one thing. Skip the part about selling his stuff. Okay. He says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Why would he come and follow Jesus? And we certainly see some people in the Gospels that follow him for a short time, like in John 6. They followed him across the uh, Sea of Galilee because he fed the 5,000 and they wanted to have another meal. But, but why would you follow him? I think that's why Dillo sees this as rewards because he sees this as follow him as discipleship mm -hmm. and that he's, he's to give up this in order to be perfect, which I'm not a Greek scholar, but my understanding is perfect just means complete also, depending on the context, correct? The word, the word means that, complete, and it's used, for example, in, in uh, James. 
in, in that way, I think. But yeah. I think here, you know, one of the keys in, in, in all the Gospels, because they do present things a little differently, if we start within our internal context with Matthew, I'm just trucking along reading Matthew, Matthew 5.48, in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is just shocking. For my Jewish culture, everything I've ever been told is more or less wrong. And, 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 and keeping the law doesn't, doesn't get me into the kingdom. And now I've got to be perfect. I think this would really strike me here if you want to be perfect. But even if you talked about it in terms of completion, it, it still, it, it, it's still in the context of doing everything, you know, that, that expresses righteousness, keeping all these commands. Uh, but I think it's a tie back. And, and I'll come back to the point about Dillo or, or try to give you my thought on that. But you're right. In other words, follow me seems like what a disciple does. Yeah. And so this could simply be a call to discipleship where... I want you to go sell your stuff and follow me. But why do you need to sell your stuff to follow Jesus? Well, that would be for the rewards in heaven to humble yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think, I, I don't want to digress and I certainly don't want to, to be a, a, I'm not trying, I'm trying to look at this also from a perspective of someone's on the fence. In Matthew 18, 1, Jesus equates entering the kingdom or being greatest in the kingdom as rewards. And 18, I think it's one through verse four. And I don't know if we went over that before or not, but he's talking about who will be greatest in the kingdom. Yeah. Not who will enter the kingdom, but who will be greatest in the kingdom. And so, and become as little children. Now, I mean, little children just, come to Christ, you know, with nothing. And I think that's what um, Dillo was talking about there. I think that's, but when I digress. Let's, I, I, I don't so, want to. No, don't I, you think, don't you think that all his life, this rich young ruler has relied on his wealth? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what Jesus is telling him is don't rely on your wealth. You have to rely on me. Yeah. Well, and that's that's exactly where I'm where I'm going. I would how I see. I it. would agree with that completely, absolutely. Uh, but 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 I I hear your comments, Ken, and and, and how Dillo gets there. I don't I don't think I, I I don't think it's correct, but I don't think it's unreasonable. In fact, yeah. I think we can make a strong case for it. And and this is you know it's important, especially on uh, passages like this. You know. It's one thing to deal with a point of view that just makes no attempt to tie it to the context, and another, when from from all the context, you you could argue this in a couple of ways, especially here where we're not saying something far different. But uh, I'll show you why I think well, it, it really isn't uh, a discipleship. But go, go can ahead. Can I just yes interject something? Yes. Um, since this is a particularly Jewish viewpoint at this point in the Gospels, um, I would refer to Ariel Arnold Fruchtenbaum Mm -hmm. because unless you are Jewish and have grown up with uh, Jewish traditions and learning, I think that 
that's where this man is approaching from. He's been told that because he's a Pharisee and keeps the law, he is good to go. Mm-hmm. And he's approaching Jesus for whatever reason. Either he wants a pat on the back, like, yeah, you know, I've noticed you. You're just really, really great. Um, you're doing it all right. You should join my group so that everybody could copy you. Or he's got a suspicion that something's missing. Mm-hmm. So it just, I would check with a, with, um, with a messianic viewpoint of, of this person and this conversation. That's just what I'm saying. Well, and, and, and I, I agree with that. There's, there's, there's some value uh, in that. And I, I probably have mentioned them before, but uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a four-volume series. He's also got an abridged version that is, is the series is Yeshua. Uh, yes. Outstanding to have. And, and I always, uh, uh, and I have, in fact, I've read, read all of them, but I, um, a lot of my, um, and I've taught Matthew before, so a lot of my uh, thoughts and notes actually um, have some some root and some ideas he has there, and and I think I think that's it's true, even even without looking at though a uh, kind of a Jewish commentator like Arnold, uh, we have to interpret this and try as best we can to put ourselves in in the shoes of the people right at that moment in that place, because it, it is a Jewish man approaching someone he views as a Jewish rabbi, and he really is asking him a question in the context of, of just the assumption, really, in that culture, that the, the keeping of the laws is how you uh, guarantee your place in the kingdom. And of course, Jesus has already shot that down earlier. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's well taken. And, and for those who aren't familiar with those books, uh, for studying the Gospels, they're helpful and in, in this way. Uh, they have lots of notes taken from rabbinic sources that will help yeah. give you an idea of what Jewish people were thinking. How did they think at that time? It, it's just like if we send a missionary today from the United States to, let's say, to China. Um, there are some cultural similarities between China and here, but I've, I've traveled there a couple of times. There's a ton of differences. They just are. And, and we would expect that missionary to know that culture in order to minister to them. Um, we're, we're sort of, Jesus does know his culture, and we're sort of the ones on the outside looking in, as it were. And I think that is what often gets us in trouble or, or makes it a challenge for us, not just in the Gospels, but even other places in the Bible. Um, yeah, I think over the centuries, a lot of the um, cults and, and things like, say, Mormonism, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, I think that uh, people who try to completely, and I'm not talking about us, I'm talking about people in the past who had absolutely no Jewish point of view whatsoever, and they would read the Bible and they would come up with conclusions that led them to crazy ideas about what the Bible really meant, because they had a, no Jewish frame of reference. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, it, it's a fair point. Um, you know, and along those same lines, uh, the Pauline dispensationalists have a great answer for this. <laughs> so right. they just say, he's not talking to us. He's not talking to the church. Well, and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, I mean, 
part of our purpose in doing this class and setting aside an hour for it is to, is to go to chase rabbits a little bit. And, and it's for those, if you don't know, or someone on the recording, uh, a Pauline dispensationalist would, would just say that Jesus is teaching salvation by works, but it was for the Jewish people. And it's, it's a different gospel for us. We're under Paul's gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, I don't and, agree. and they would minimize, if not outright ignore, almost anything Paul didn't write. Uh, yep. That heresy yeah. uh, started with Marcion, uh, who, by the by, even started getting rid of some of Paul's writings. Wow. Um, so it's not, it's it's a repackage. Um, I know there are people who seem analytical and will argue that to the hilt. I would argue that some things are so absurd. Yeah. That it's very difficult to 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 even have a conversation <laughs> about those things, and and I don't, I mean, I don't want to sound mean spirited about it, but it's it's an absurd uh, point of view. Uh, you say why? Because if I read the book of Acts, Peter preaches the same gospel as Paul does later in the book. Right. They all talk about who Jesus is. He died on the cross and rose again. Right. I mean, it's fascinating. But yeah, anyway. I don't get those. I, yeah. Those are the people that, I don't know. They, I don't know. They just go off on the wrong track. Uh, I know it's impossible to have a discussion with them. Impossible. Not That's too bad. Yeah. But understand some people relish having a viewpoint that makes them not only an ultra minority, it makes them smarter than the rest of us. And, and they love to fight about it. And when I find people that have a view, almost nobody holds and they love to fight about it. Um, it, it as much of a facade of intellectualism as they may provide or careful study, um, they have it. It all brings us back to a simple thing. And it's, it's kind of just Susan's comment about, you know, getting a, a Jewish context on this. It's hermeneutics. There, there are some basic, really common sense principles understanding the scripture and, and the idea of context, which includes trying to understand a bit about this culture. It's why a lot of Christians of a prior generation will read the books by Edersheim and, and people like that to try to understand yeah. these people. Uh, it's, it's important. But let's, let's trek through the end of this thing and, 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 and maybe a few other verses after it, because I think it helps contain it a bit. Um, Jesus will say, if you want to be perfect, or he says you lack one thing, and he says, sell all your stuff and follow me. Uh, I, I can see why it could be taken as, as a discipleship thing, but you would only follow Jesus in, in a general, generally speaking. You would, and this is literally following him. It's not like following him in your heart. You would only generally do that if um, you had, had, had come to see him as the Christ. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's the unstated intermediate part of this that's really, that's really an issue. That's really the part he lacks. But to prepare this man for that, that's why I like your pre-evangelism term, he needs to remind him or show him. And it's, it's, again, it's the microcosm of, of the Sermon on the Mount. You really haven't kept the law and, and, and it's not that the law would require him to sell all his stuff. What he's pointing him to is he loves his stuff more than following the will of God. And um, it's interesting that he lists these commandments about what you're not to do to other people, but not the commandments that deal with your relationship to God. 
And money is clearly his idol. It's his first priority. And, and just the very concept of losing it. Nothing in the law of Moses required that. And I'm not aware of any other place in the scripture where, where Jesus commanded them that you have to give all your stuff away per se. Uh, although many of them had left behind, and Peter's fixing to say it, they left behind their lives, their fishing business or whatever. Um, this brings out the, the, the need. Until people see, don't see, until they see the need, there's no way you can give them the solution. Um, he goes away in sorrow, it says, because he had many possessions, he was grieving. Grieving, why? He believe, he's not denying what Jesus said. He's going away in sorrow because he just doesn't think he can do it. He had many possessions, but we don't know what he'll do later. And and uh, I, I think the you know the, the command to follow me presupposes coming to realize who Jesus is and why if he said follow me you would immediately do it if you believed he was the Christ the Son of God and he said follow me I think you would you know in this context and he's not there because for him Jesus is a good teacher and that means he has good answers but he's not the Christ. And, and, and so I, I, that's why I view it this way. Notice in the answer in Mark, and this will help with, well, actually it's, it's in all three, you'll have treasure in heaven. That's true. If you come to Christ, he would have some reward in heaven for giving up his possessions to the poor. That's true. Um, I think both are true, but it's the intermediate step that's un, unstated and it's coming to Christ. Look at, look at what follows. I think it helps build this, this point. And I don't have this on the screen, so I'll, I'll um, stop sharing. But if, if you look at what follows, immediately his disciples ask him, uh, you know, uh, well, they're going to ask him a question, but Jesus turns to his disciples. And this helps us understand that he was talking about entering the kingdom. It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. You know, truly, I tell you. And I think that's the subject matter. I just think he's presenting it in a way designed to bring this man to realize um, that he will not achieve righteousness on his own. And so he needs more uh, than, than what he's got. Uh, Jesus goes and uses that expression. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I think he's talking about a real camel and a real needle, not a, a gate at Jerusalem. But there are those who would say that there was a, a particular gate that was a small gate. You couldn't get big animals through it, that sort of thing. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I've heard that, too, that uh, the camels would have to take their baggage off. You know how camels have the baggage on the side of them, that the baggage would have to take off and you have to come in only a camel, period. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe that's true. I don't I, I don't know. I haven't seen anything that, that really traced it down to a source, um, yeah. but it wouldn't change the meaning. The point no. is that, uh, and this is true, right? I mean, probably every one of us and, and you know, and maybe someone here or someone on a recording, if they were honest, would say that they are kind of wealthy. But uh, I've known very wealthy Christian people. Many more of the Christian people I've known were not. And I don't mean, you know, we can get into by American standards versus, you know, Christians in, in uh, Burundi, you know, we're all wealthy, right? But I don't mean that, but I just mean, you know, I've known, you know, I, I give an example, at the church I served on as a, I was a, an executive pastor and 
you know, I'll just say this, um, just sort of randomly, a lady that was, she was one of the, you call them shut-ins or whatever, health wasn't good to come to church, uh, but, but she would just send a check here and there a couple, two, three times a year for a hundred thousand dollars. It just wasn't a big thing for her financially. And, and we got flooded in hurricane Ike and we had, and we never asked her for anything, but we had, um, you know, over $200,000 in damage. And, um, I had to make the repairs and just start spending the money. And then checks just came in for $200,000, you know, two different hundred thousand dollar checks. Wow. So are there wealthy Christians? Absolutely. Lots of them. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of times they have a special ministry God has given to them uh, in that regard. And I've had some people with wealth who have asked me before, well, Hudson, like, what should I do? And, you know, things like that. And it wasn't all, my answer isn't all about giving money away, but there may be a place for that. But like with one person I have in mind, you know, he has this really big house. And I said, you know, you could start a Bible study in that house. And, and he did. And it's like the kind of home where you, you can easily host 40 or 50 people in the living room and, you know, and, and so um, you, you, you use that, um, that, that wealth to, to do some things. And so there are rich people, but you find if you, if you just go back to the night, you know, the 19th century, Christianity proliferated among the slaves in this country before they were emancipated so that some before, but primarily after the emancipation, they began forming lots and lots of churches. I mean, within just a couple of years, big churches that had thousands of people in them. Uh, how is it that, that, that uh, Christianity would so proliferate among a, a, a population in slavery? Well, because that's what always has been the case, that, that poor people flock to Jesus and, and there's some reasons for that, but understand in the first century that, that we had what were called mystery religions, and you had to have lots of money to get into them, to pay the fees. And so a lot of the religious practice, especially among the Gentiles, not for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles, uh, it was for people of money. And in Christianity, not only did, you know, you didn't have to pay money to be a Christian, but Christianity was saying everybody is on the equal playing field. We're all level playing field. You know, there's not rich or poor. They're not black or white. I mean, there's not male and female. It's just all there. So anyway, um, it's all to say this. Uh, he says it's hard for, for wealthy people to enter the kingdom. And, and that's true for the very obvious reason that they tend to be um, so focused and so reliant on their money. I mean, it's just not a, a difficult thing to see. And we see that today. Lots of the wealthiest people around, and I'm talking when we start moving to the billionaires and all that, they they they're they're very anti-Christian, yep. if anything, and they're they just you know, they may even do some good things by the way in terms of philanthropy, and I'm not talking about that, but they don't see the need for Christ. People that have nothing are more able sometimes to see the need, and I think that's all it is. Uh, the rich young ruler needed to see his need and his money really was getting in the way of that. And so that's why Jesus told him to give it up. But um, here, uh, his disciples heard what he said, and they said, well, how can anyone be saved? See that? We haven't heard that word very much in Matthew's gospel. You hear it a lot in John. So now, you know, the conversation about with the rich young ruler it is about this issue, entering the kingdom. It is about this issue, 
being saved. And at least here in this text, I don't see him, you know, differentiating kind of fine points between those. But but he says, of course, with men, it's, you know, you know with a man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And some Calvinists say, see that? God has to come elect them. But that doesn't make any sense because he's he's specifically talking about rich folks. So you're saying rich people have to be elected and poor folks don't. I mean, that's just stupid. What, what, what he's doing is just pointing out that you're right. Man left to his own resources will do what this young man did. They'll try to keep the law or whatever. It, it's a God thing. And, and even with, within free grace where we wouldn't see, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, Calvinism is, is the, the gospel. We do recognize that God is the one that does the saving. And we're responding to a message from God that we call the gospel. And, and God can, can do it. He can even save rich people and, and he can save people that are in prison and all kinds of people that you, we might think, oh, they'll never come to Christ, but he can do it. Um, then Peter says, and this was the part I wanted to get to quickly so you can just contextualize everything else, because Peter's still dealing with what happened, what he witnessed. And, and he thinks about Jesus told this young guy, go get rid of all your stuff. You have treasure in heaven. And Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? Um, and, and, and then Jesus says, in the renewal of all things, which I believe to be the kingdom, um, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, those uh, you, you who have followed me will be on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Uh, that will be their reward. And then he adds, though, what about everyone else? What about us? What about the people who were not apostles? Uh, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. They will have the rewards and the life. And that's what the young man would have had, the rewards and the life, both. Um, but many who are first to be last and the last first, which he then explains in the parable that follows, which I'm just going to comment on quickly, but because uh, because this is all one unit of thought. We have this unfortunate chapter break. Uh, but he's telling the disciples, you have given up stuff and you will have a reward in the kingdom. And other people that haven't, you know, other than you will also. And I think he's looking forward in time. Others who will give up things for me will have reward mm -hmm. in the kingdom. And, and then he tells a parable to explain this statement. The first will be last and the last first. I think this could be thought of in a couple of different ways. One could be that there are people who are Christians today who have a, a distorted view of their walk and, and they believe they will be first in terms of rewards, but they won't. But it, it also could be that in terms of timing, that, that Christians of the first century, Christians of the year 2022, will all have the ability to be richly rewarded in the kingdom. And his parable seems to be focused on that aspect of it because he tells a parable, and, and it's a kingdom parable, like we saw in, in chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's, a, it's like, a, you know, remember parable uh, makes a comparison. It, 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 you know, like is the word for a simile. It, it makes a, uh, it does a teaching by analogy one time in Matthew 13, he said the kingdom may be compared to, and he tells a little story, but 
here, uh, uh, someone is, is hiring people to work as daily as day laborers. And he just, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he hires people at different points in the day. And everybody he hires, he offers the same pay. So let's just say he tells everyone, I'm going to pay you $100 to work in the field today. So the people he hires at, at 7 a.m., they work the whole day, they get $100. But the people he hires at 3 in the afternoon, they only work two and a half hours, they get $100. Well, the people in the morning are upset that the people who didn't start working till later got the $100. And, and Jesus basically says, you know, um, you know, they came and complained about it. And, 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 and Jesus basically says, um, you know, you agreed to work for what you agreed to. Verse 13, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius, one denarius for one day's work? That's, you know, take what's yours and go. I, I want to give this last man, the guy that started working at three o'clock, I'm going to give him a denarius also. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? Um, those disciples were very worried about their place in the kingdom. And it'll come out in, in what happens next that we won't read, but, but uh, they'll, they'll shortly after uh, be asking who will be first in the kingdom and stuff like that. They're, they're not getting this idea that uh, over the span of time, different points in the day before Jesus returns and pays the rewards, uh, people will, will start working. And I, I think it's, it's different points in time going forward so that this would include us. And, and, and the point is just that, um, you know, uh, there's going to be an opportunity for a lot more people in the future to be rewarded in the, in the kingdom. And, and it's not the case that the apostles necessarily will get more reward than those that come after, even though they will have this position over the 12 tribes. Um, anyway, hope that makes some sense. He finishes with a repeat of the statement in verse 16. The last will be first and the first last. He, he's, he's just talking about, I don't think it means everybody gets the same reward. I think what it means is, he gets, Jesus has authority to reward as he sees fit uh, to those who do the labor. And, and because verse 16 and, and, and verse 30 were the same, you can see it's all part of a unit. That's why I wanted to mention it quickly. Uh, but I do think, you know, you can make some argument that the first being last could also get this idea of people who are first here may be last in the kingdom. And I, and I think that's true. And, and, uh, you know, so what about those who never go to the field to work at all? No matter what their position is here, it's the people that work in Jesus's field that receive the compensation, which means it's not a salvation parable. It's a rewards parable, clearly. So I'll stop there. I think that's, um, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, Next time, I want to jump to Matthew 22, but I think I'd be remiss if I skipped the triumphal entry mm -hmm. in Matthew 21. And so we'll try to do that. And as I said, we'll have a shortened class next time. So we'll take a, a more bite-sized chunk. I would suggest to you, if you haven't done it, read um, all four accounts of the triumphal entry, because it's one of the rare instances where even John's gospel, which is radically different from the others, has the triumphal entry because it's so important. And, and I would read it with a few thoughts in mind uh, from a Jewish perspective. 
why does Jesus need to do a triumphal entry? And why on a particular day of the week, in a particular month, like there's great significance to when he does the triumphal entry. And this is where to like Susan's comment earlier, uh, like Arnold Fruchenbaum's uh, materials are helpful. He has comments about the triumphal entry you won't see in almost any other commentaries because uh, frankly, people are looking through a Gentile lens. Jesus could only do the triumphal entry at that moment. And he's not there to get crowned as king. As is you talking about Daniel? Um, are you talking about the, the prophecy in Daniel for the exact time when he would enter the king, well, enter the Jerusalem? I, I, I think that that's true of Daniel 9, but we don't really know the exact day that the uh, order of Cyrus to rebuild was issued. And so those who try to do the math and say it had to be exactly Palm Sunday or Palm Monday are, are a little too, you know, uh, I believe the math, I'll tell you that. And I frequently have taught it. I even did a lesson about a year ago on it that should be online of... I think you can peg the year, but I don't okay. think you can peg the day. But you, okay. you you might be able to peg pretty close to the month, and it will put you in the March-April time frame. But what I was thinking was the um, the Jewish people are going to celebrate Passover. A lot goes into that. One has to set aside a sheep on a certain day of the week, specifically Nisan Tith. <laughs> The sheep for the slaughter must be set aside on that day. That's why Jesus is, is doing a triumphal entry on that day. If we, if we start, if we keep in mind the feast and the Passover, it will help us understand the one last comment about it, though. Um, in John's gospel, think about what immediately precedes this triumphal entry, because it's, it's John 11. It's, it's healing Lazarus. Jesus is doing a lot of miracles privately at this point in Matthew's gospel. He'll heal somebody and say, go and tell nobody. But in John 11, he heals Lazarus, who's dead, who's a public figure, basically. He's wealthy, and everybody knows who he is, and there's a bunch of witnesses to see it. And so when everybody's throwing down the palm leaves with the triumphal entry, they're throwing down the palm leaves because everybody knows this man raised Lazarus. It's just that, you know, these things, you see them, you know, get beyond the bare facts and get to the motivations. What are they doing? And why throw down palm leaves at all? Is there significance to that? Right? Well, in Jewish context, there is. So I, I hope you see what I'm saying. There's, there's like, there's a lot there in the triumphal entry. And, and, and a lot of times uh, people would say, well, he's being set aside as, you know, he's presenting himself as the king. He already did that. And in Matthew 12 and 13, they said, nope. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, this generation is getting judged, you know? So it's not to set himself aside as the king, although he will fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So anyway, lots there. Just trying to whet your appetite. Let me stop the recording.